friends, we made it. We made it to part eight of this series. Are you still here? <laughs> Are you still around? Oh, man, this is part number eight of our series, uh, New Ideas for the New Year. And it's episode 278 of the show. Hope you've enjoyed the series. I hope you've gotten something out of it from at least one of the episodes. I tried to pepper in stuff that would be new ideas that would touch a variety of different people in their path and in their journey. And so I really hope that that's been the case uh, for you. Today we're talking to uh, Martha Elias Downey. Her friends call her Matt. So we're all friends now, so we're going to call her Matt, Matt Downey. Uh, she wrote a book called Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology. Now, if you grew up like me, and many of you grew up in the same setting as I did, very evangelical, you've heard the verse <laughs> about the narrow road, right? And I was always told growing up that, you know, following Jesus calls you to the narrow road, uh, not the wide road. The wide road leads to destruction, Jesus said. It's about the narrow road, the narrow gate, not the wide one. The world wants you on the wide road, right? There's lots of room for lots of ideas and lots of beliefs and lots of sin, right? And all these different things. And that's the way of the world. But the way of Jesus is a narrow road. Uh, there's only a very narrow way to believe, a narrow way to think, a narrow way to live your life. That's the road you want to be on. Matt, in her book, wonders what if the call is not to a narrow road, but to a wide road? And what if what we think is a call to a narrow road is really a call to a wide road? What if the landscape of theology is not narrow, but it's wide? What if the gate is small, but the field that it leads to is wide open. And so she's reimagining the landscape of theology, and we talk about the implications of all of those things. We talk about that particular verse that we've all heard about and how that verse fits into this idea of going wide. And I really love this, this episode. I really love her book. you got to pick up her book. I'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, this, 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 friends, is where I'm at in my spiritual journey making more room at the table for more people, for more ideas, for more backgrounds, for more perspectives, for more, more of everything. And this idea that nobody's got the corner market on God, uh, but the field that we graze in, the field of the divine is very wide and very open. Um, as Jesus said, right, there's, there's sheep, there's sheep who are part of our family that are not in this particular pasture. It's wide open, right? And so this is a good one. Good episode, good book. Go pick it up. Uh, that's it. I don't have anything else, friends. Eight episodes. Eight episodes, eight introductions. You're tired of hearing from me. <laughs> you need a break from the What If Project <laughs> after this one. But thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for checking in. Thank you for listening to the ones you've listened to over the course of this last week. I'm going to put the links to uh, Matt and her book, uh, in the show notes, also in the show notes, links to my books, uh, links to Patreon, places to support, bleh, places to support the show, all the different things. Uh, but this is episode number 278 with Matt Martha Elias Downey. Enjoy.
All right, hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're sitting down with a brand new guest. Her name is Martha Elias Downey. She wrote an amazing book called Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology. And so Martha, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So before we get into the book, maybe take a little bit to tell us uh, about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Tell us about a day in the life of, of Martha Downey. <laughs> Um, well, first of all, my name is Martha Elias Downey, but if you know me at all, you usually call me Matt, so mm -hmm. feel free to call me Matt, which can be confusing for people who see one name on a, a book or in publishing, and then in person, I go by something else, but there's precedent. <laughs> Other authors do this, so no worries. Awesome. Um, I live in Montreal, which is the traditional land of the Ganyangihaga Nation, mm -hmm. and uh, they are our neighbors, and we like to live in harmony with other peoples and it's a very multinational multicultural multi-ethnic multi-food mm. place to live so it's wonderful and challenging in all these ways um typical life in the day what i do it's different every day but basically what i do is i work in educational and learning spaces so mm. whatever that might look like i do contract work teaching and doing workshops uh, this friday i'm actually doing a marketing and theology workshop interesting for me but why not yeah so anywhere i i just came back from a conference presenting a paper there so anywhere people want to talk about how we think about god and what these notions of god uh how they impact how we engage with the world and with each other i'm there i'm there for it yeah all right so back up to you talked about the different types of food that are in your area uh, I'm I'm hungry. <laughs> so tell me what what's what are some of these dishes that you're talking about? <laughs> um, well, we have great uh, Indian food. We have mm. great Asian food. We have Mexican food. We have poke. It's popular everywhere. We have a lot of uh, traditional pubs. Mm. Really sushi everywhere, and then high end steakhouses. Like honestly, just name a genre and and it's there. It. It's there. That's awesome. Yeah, I live in a place in the south and outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and we have like a couple places, but I grew up in New Jersey and like right outside of New York City. So we had tons of different types of food places. So I miss that life because I don't get that as much here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're kind of like the New York of the North. I like yeah. to think in some ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. So your book, um, Go Wide, is a really interesting a uh, really interesting concept for me, and I imagine because of our listeners, because I grew up in this world where I was handed a very, very narrow theology, right? like a very narrow understanding of God, very narrow understanding of the Bible, uh, very narrow faith. You know, God is to be understood in one way, the cross in one way, the Bible in one way, the stories of the Bible in one particular way, even in like our homiletics classes in seminary, it was always about finding the meaning of the text, like another you know, one meaning. And the verse that was always used uh, to kind of back that up was, of course, from Matthew 7, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, where Jesus has to enter through this narrow gate because it's this small gate and ultimately this narrow road that leads to life, whereas the, the wider one leads to destruction. But your book, I love it because it kind of turns that whole idea of narrowness on its head. And it wonders if perhaps there is this different, bigger, wider, more inclusive, whatever word we want to use, way to think about God. And I, I think at the foundation of your book, especially early on, you talk a lot about your, your story. And so I was curious to hear a little bit more about it, because any good book comes from a deep place. And obviously, this book came from a very deep 
place. I was wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your experience on the quote narrow theological road <laughs> and kind of what brought you to this place of imagining something wider and bigger and what that looks like in your everyday life and doing the things that you do now. Yeah, for sure. And I, I resonate with so many aspects of your story. <laughs> and I think um, I was just came back from a, a, a conference where Willie James Jennings was speaking and he, he says, my life work, my life's work comes out of all the contradictions that I face. And I went, yes. Yeah. And I think that is where um, my work and, and this just contains so much of what I've been thinking and thinking about and processing for many, many years. And I think, oh, it's an answer to all answer. <laughs> it's a bit of, of an overstatement, perhaps, but it's a way <laughs> of addressing so many of the contradictions that I have yeah. been facing in my life. So I start the book by talking a bit about my um, childhood where I grew up on the Canadian prairies and like the horizon is endless. The You can see for miles and miles and miles and miles in every direction. And mm. it's wonderful and beautiful. And I think I I love that wide open spaciousness. And then as I grew up more, it seems like more and more, my life became more and more restricted, as you say, there's, because I grew up in the Mennonite church. So there's mm -hmm. one way to think about God. And we have found the best way. And there's one way to salvation. And then there's one way to heaven. And there's these all these rules and regulations. Yeah. And actually, as I hit puberty, as a woman, new rules and regulations were put on me because you know, the body is very dangerous if you're a woman. Yeah. So all these other things are added onto it. So as I progressed in life, I think my life just felt like it was getting narrower and narrower and narrower and more restricted. Mm. As and as a child at this, I had this immense like a wonder and joy at the freedom of living in this wide open landscape. Mm. And I think as that, um, as I just went through life and was involved in church leadership for, you know, decades, it was always, there were just so many restrictions to how we could think, uh, who we were supposed to be, who he, yeah. who we were supposed to be with. Yeah. And, and I, and I know, know that um, when we moved to Montreal, uh, I decided to go back to school. So I went to graduate school in theology. And I remember sitting in one of my classes and the professor just was an exegesis class, an Old Testament um, Hebrew professor. And she said, well, you, you know, we all know that um, Adam and Eve are not literal people. And then she just went on with her lecture and my, my whole <laughs> mind was going, what just happened? Does right. everyone know something that Back I it don't up. know? What'd you say? <laughs> I, and I look around the classroom and I'm going, everyone else is very calm. What don't I know that they right. all know? And then I, it's like, it, it didn't really freak me out as much as go, oh my goodness, suddenly I'm free to explore. Yeah. I'm free to really ask questions and just consider so many things that I was kind of, well, even if it wasn't really stated, it was kind of formed in me in some way that you don't ask questions about certain things. And yeah. here, everyone was supposed to ask questions. You were supposed to explore. This is yeah. what gets rewarded yeah. uh, and imagine and come up with new ways of thinking about things and making connections. And I went, I am so alive in this learning space. Mm. I think I found that it, it brought me back to the wide open landscape. I went, this is what I've been missing yeah. in this very, very small, narrow way mm. that really has been evangelicalism and so much of my life. Yeah, that's really good. I I, I resonate with, with a lot of that, uh, specifically when you talk about sitting in that class 
and hearing the professor say that we all know Adam and Eve isn't they weren't real. And I remember I had a seminary class. I've talked about this on the show before, and I actually had the professor from this class come on the podcast to talk about this one thing. But it was a hermeneutics class, so we're talking about you know how to take apart the Bible and how to you know exegete passages and things like that. And he did this thing where he gave he broke the class up into like let's say ten different groups. We were in teams of like two or three. He gave us all the same passage. And he said, your group over there is Baptist and you guys are a bunch of Calvinists. You guys are a bunch of complete heretics doing whatever you're doing. Your group is atheists. You guys are atheists over there. And we had to actually come up with this talk or this sermon where we would preach this passage and what, what kind of ideas we would bring out of it based upon that context we were coming from. And it blew my mind because I was always taught like there's one way to understand every passage. There's one meaning to every passage. And here are these other people coming up with these legitimate interpretation of this passage based upon their perspective. And it completely blew my mind because that was not at all from the, the, the place where I came from growing up. And I just had this like aha moment in that class that really, I think, propelled me to this place where I am today and having these what if questions. What if there are ways to think about all of these things that are much different than these narrow ways that we were handed? So I resonate with that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think one of the the impetuses for me was just living in um in a in a multicultural kind of setting. Yeah. A very much a monoculture where a tight knit Mennonite community sure. and then moving quite a bit and then ending up in Montreal where you go, um, not only are there many different cultures and languages and ways of being around me, but I'm yeah. actually a minority in many ways. Yeah. So not everything accommodates to me. I have to accommodate to what is happening. And that has been such a humbling and really, really good experience for me to not assume that I am, that the way that I know how to do things is the way things should be done. I think I didn't really realize too, and you said it before, and I, I, read, I wrote about this in the book as well, that as a woman, the narrowness only increased for you as you grew and as you, like you said, you hit puberty. And I didn't really, that was like, a, that was an aha moment for me because I was thinking like men don't have that problem. I mean, I experienced my own narrowness, of course, growing up and things like that, things got narrower. But thinking back on my experiences, like in private Christian school, especially like junior high, high school, I was thinking about like girls as they were hitting puberty. Like I remember the, the principal going around and measuring their skirt, their knee to make sure it wasn't too high above the knee. That wasn't something they had to experience as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, that was something they experienced once they got into junior high and high school. But that's an example of that narrowness kind of closing in on them. So I never thought of that. That brought a whole lot of different things to my mind. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking it's like there's some kind of gaze that you're not aware of. Yes. That, yeah. that is on you, like God's gaze is always on you or the authority, authoritarian gaze is always on you. Yeah. And whereas before as a small child a girl i could run around free outside didn't matter what i was wearing yep. and suddenly this gaze came on me and everything that i wore how i presented myself yep. it was all very much um scrutinized and yeah. i had to do certain things in order to be the good girl that's right that's right so if we're going to imagine this wider way of thinking if it's we're going to say that it's not it's not narrow doesn't need to be as narrow as what we've been given what do we do with that verse in Matthew 7? I think it's 13 and 14. And I'm going to read it for our listeners just in case they're not super familiar with it. Uh, but Jesus is talking about this narrow gate, wide gate. 
He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. So for me, like imagine, obviously, it's probably the same for you growing up. You know, the idea was that this narrow faith I was handed with this narrow way of thinking about God and the Bible and the cross, this narrowness, straightforwardness, black and white thinking like this is the road that's going to lead me to life. Anything at all that's even a little bit wider is going to lead me to destruction, which, of course, must be hell. That's what that word was always interpreted as. But on the surface, like if we lift that verse out of its context, that that explanation makes perfect sense, right? Like we can certainly read that in there. Um, but help us, like help us understand, like for those of us who are raised with that interpretation, if we were to reframe this in light of this conversation of a wider road, which is a good thing, what do we do with these words? <laughs> oh, well, we just ignore them. No, we don't. <laughs> Throw um, them out. <laughs> yeah. Well, a couple of things. I actually write a chapter on this in the book is yep. an, as an introduction to kind of deal with that so-called obstacle. Mm -hmm. But even wider than that, if we take a look at the whole context, we're basically in what we people have called the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. which is really talking, Jesus is talking to people that would not have been um, the authority figures in their society or even the favored majority in their societies. So he's giving them hope in some ways. So what he's saying is so countercultural in many mm. ways, so anti-empire, so um, really trying to lift up people who have don't have a whole lot of reason for hope in some ways. That's what he's doing. He's talking about the little people, the nobody saying, you are somebody. In fact, the whole kingdom of heaven is made for people like you and is mm. given to people like you and then to come to this verse and kind of say well but now we're going to go very narrow instead of widen and open and make the kingdom of heaven accessible to everyone not just the religious elite or those who are in positions of authority mm. it's very countercultural. so to take this take this verse and and put it back into oh now we're going to police how you do things it doesn't make sense so i think we, mm. that's the first thing we have to look at it in the context and the second thing is, um, I like to look at this uh, as uh, something that deals with transition. So gates are transition points where you're moving from one space to a next or a doorway. And uh, so when we take a look at the act, what it's actually saying is narrow is the gate. And I'm going, yeah, pretty much all gates are narrow because mm -hmm. it's a transition point from one to the next. But then it opens up into a wide place or a new place or something different so gates to a city small access point opens up into a city gates if we're talking about shepherds and sheep small gate to get into a huge pasture where you can just graze to your heart's content and be protected mm. as well so and the other metaphor i use is that of a birth canal which we have all come through um, in some way or another uh, so this narrow, narrow place of constriction that leads to life. Mm. We all have this place of feeling, and I've had this several times in my life where I feel so, so constricted and it feels like tight and, and very uncomfortable. And I've learned to to kind of recognize that as, oh, that means there's some transition probably coming and don't worry, things will open up just as this is kind of the push to get you into that new wider place. Yeah. So that's kind of how I've interpreted Ed. And my question when I'm reading the Bible and I come across things that seem very constrictive or very um, like they're policing me in some way, 
I go, what is a way to read this so that I find life in it? Mm. And that's life for, for a lot of people, not just me, but life for those who really are looking for it. And that's kind of my, one of my guiding principles in interpretation is how can I read this in a way that it gives life to people? Because I think that's what's Jesus' intent always. Yeah. How can I give life and hope to people, not give them more rules and more restrictions and make their life even narrow, narrower than it already is? Yeah. What do you say to the person who hears that and the, you know, the Christian soldier in their head <laughs> that we all grew up with is kind of saying, well, you know, she's just making the Bible say what she wants it to say. Like, what is you, how would you respond to that type of criticism if someone were to throw that at you after hearing what you just said? Well, I think we all do that in some way. I mean, that's the nature of interpretation is certainly I don't do that. (laughs) Let me, let me just say the, the white European men who have totally objective ways of looking at things. Uh, But I think I, I might question that word want but I'd say, yes, we all interpret it through our own experience. That's the only way we can. And which is why we want to actually read the scriptures and the text in community because everyone's bringing their own experience and you just get a richer sense of what it could mean for people um, to bring them life, to bring them hope, to bring them some sense of belonging and, uh, and a way of doing and being better in this world. Yeah. That's one of the, Yeah, I think that's like the biggest takeaway for me from that class I was telling you about was that seeing these different perspectives, we all bring our perspective to the text. I think that was the biggest lesson to kind of come away with is that we all bring our stuff to the text. And when we do that, we can come away with a very different interpretation or understanding of it. And I think it's I think Richard Rohr is the one who uses the illustration of a diamond where he says that like every time you turn the scriptures, like turning a diamond where the reflection is going to be completely different. Uh, depending on what type of light from your circumstances is hitting the diamond, it's going to appear differently on the wall every single time. And I think that's such a beautiful point, you know, that you brought out. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that nowadays, which it's very kind of modern, recent uh, uh, way to look at the, the scriptures is to say, there's only one way and this is the way, and we figured it out. And it's totally objective how we made that decision. <laughs> right. That's very, very recent because you go back to Jewish tradition, and it's always about multiple interpretations, being able to pull out a lot of different things and let all those different interpretations stand together, even if they're conflicting and say, yeah, let them all stand together in tension. We don't have a problem with that. The multiplicity of it, the multifacetedness of it, I think we miss that beauty if we just knock all those other things off and say only one way to read this. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that passage. I wrote about the narrow road on my blog uh, I don't remember. It was maybe like a year ago, but I was thinking about it in terms of, I was kind of like flipping it on its head because like I was always taught that the narrow road is, you know, the narrow gate and the road is all about, you know, you got to believe the right things. And it's all about, you know, if you don't believe the right things, you're going to go to hell. And it's all about, you know, um, believing the things about like the rapture and about the, like all these different pieces of theology that you have to align with. That's, it's really hard to do that because it's really hard things you have to believe, but it's what's going to ultimately lead you to life. I thought to myself, well, what if, what if the 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 narrow road is actually like the road of, of like love? What if it's about grace and forgiveness and about these things? Because to me, that's the hard stuff to live. It's easy to hate somebody. It's easy to judge somebody. That gate's huge. <laughs> I can walk through that gate, you know, all day long. And everybody wants to walk through that gate, but it's that other gate that's smaller 
that's much more difficult. So what if it's that, that gate leads to life because those are the really hard things to do in life, but those are the, that's the path of, of the Christ, whereas the wider road that leads to destruction I mean, look at all the things going on in the world today with Israel and Palestine. When we walk through the gate, that's all about war and judgment and hatred and all these different things and exclusion that leads to destruction that leads right down the path of destruction. Whereas the other gate leads to something much more different. So that's kind of how I've been exploring that verse in my own, in my own time. Yeah, that's really good. And that's something that I think uh, is important to note in that passage as well is this ease versus the difficulty and what yeah. is the more difficult thing it is the way of love. It is the yeah. way of peacemaking. That's right. All right. Uh, chapter six uh, of the book, you have an interesting thought that you kind of open up with. I wanted to read it for our listeners, if that's okay with you, and ask you to respond to it a little bit. Um, I typed it out over here somewhere. Here it is. Okay. So the first step you say in embracing a theology, which is broader, wider, and more spacious, is to recognize where our theology has been based more on cultural, social, economic constructs than on divine self-revelation, especially in the person of Jesus. Uh, so I think that that's a, that's a huge statement. There's like so many things that we could pack that are packed into that statement that we could unpack together. But like, if we were to think of uh, modern theology, like let's, let's talk about like evangelicalism since it's so prominent in the U S like what specific pieces of theology or doctrine or whatever would you say are grounded in cultural, social, and economic structures or constructs that you mentioned? Like, what what are some examples of what that might look like in theology that many of us would be familiar with? Yeah, and I'm, I'll, I'll probably make it a little broader than theology because mm -hmm. theology is situated, at least in our Western uh, kind of world, is situated within these constructs that we live in. So patriarchy which is one of the things, so it's the assumption that God is male, that God is at the top of the household and rules everyone else. And we have a hierarchy where, you know, there's lesser people in there as well. And I think that's just a given in so much of theology and how we live as well, mm -hmm. that it's, it permeates us. And we don't even know, like for myself, I would say it took me so long to realize that I am living in a patriarchal world that is not built for me to flourish mm -hmm. because I'm in it. I don't see it. And I'm still discovering how that is affecting me in um, not so good ways. Yep. So it's, it's hard to see when you're inside it. So patriarchy is one of the things that I think is just unspoken. And uh, even the fact that in studying theology, you know, it was a given that you have to study all the male European classics, so to speak, if, if you're going to know anything about theology, that's just mm -hmm. the assumption. So mm -hmm. there's only one type of voice that's allowed to speak to you about mm -hmm. theology. Mm -hmm. so that's just one of them. Um, capitalism, can we say that? Uh, <laughs> and this idea of private ownership, mm -hmm. and this idea of owning not only things, but people, and that if it's yours, it's no one else's, and that you can trade and have transactions. And I think so much of our theology it can be about ownership and transaction and how we see God as a God who owns many things, owns us even. Uh, and this is just not a healthy concept when we're talking about how we deal with creation uh, or with each other. Yeah. This privacy and an idea of ownership, meaning you are, again, you, yeah, that something is an object for you to do with as you please. Yeah, which kind of how I was kind of taught God does that God does with us as God pleases, because God owns us in some yeah. way. 
I'm yeah, a tool of the Lord, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm used, you know, that um, I'm used by the <laughs> I'm God is using us. Every yeah. the, the, there are some trigger words that I have same um, that every time it's like, no, no, like you'd say that in any other relationship, it would be a huge red flag. But when yep. we're talking about God, no, it's totally fine. Yeah. So yeah, this idea of that. Um conservatism, which hmm. I is valuable in some ways that you want to conserve things that are important and that uh, you want to carry forward through different generations. But this idea that we are trying to preserve the status quo and not let anything challenge that. Yeah. Uh, you know, even people going back to, well, uh, this is in a conversation we had this, I had this week with other people saying, well, we can always go back to the creeds. We have the creeds and that's where everyone agrees on. I'm going, um, no, you don't assume everyone agrees with the creeds. Not like, I know <laughs> a little bit of history, but where they come from and where what they were sure. used for. And anyway. Uh, all that to say this idea of conserving being the main um, the main way that we enact our faith is just to always be preserving what was mm. instead of exploring what is around us now and what could be because that's how that's how diverse and beautiful and creative this universe is yeah. that the creator made it I think we forget about the creative impulse in the creation narratives and we just assume that everything has been created that will be created and we're just here to make sure it keeps going uh yeah. in one only one way i don't know if i explained that uh, very well but yeah this a this non-creative kind of assumption is really counter creative yeah <laughs> counter creator counter genesis in yeah yeah where, where did i mean where does it, in your estimation like where does that where does this come from because most people would say well that's what the bible says Man, and, and that's the way it's always been, you know. And but when you break it down like that, you can see, like, you know, for instance, um, I had somebody on the show. Actually, the episode released today. Her name is of the day of this recording. Her name is Karen Tate, and she wrote a book called "The Normal Normalization of Abuse," and she talks about how, similar to what you had just said about patriarchy, you know, when we, the, the churches and society as a whole, you know, elevation of the masculine and the lowering of the feminine and pushing it away has helped to normalize abusive situations, whether they're extreme abusive situations or maybe surface level kind of abusive situations. They're still abusive in some way, shape or form. If somebody is feeling like they're silenced, somebody's feeling like they're not good enough, whatever, that's, that's an abusive atmosphere to live in. But we've, we've accepted it as normal because of the way that, um, you know, the, the masculine has been elevated, the feminine has been lowered. So my question is like, where, like we, we come to the idea that we, we, and I, I did this too. Like I assumed this stuff was in the Bible. I just assumed it was, that's what I was told, you know, but now that I'm, I'm in this place where I'm on my own, I'm out of seminary. I'm away from the, the ties of those, those places. I'm free to do this podcast and explore and talk to people like you. Like I'm realizing that this stuff is not in the Bible. Like it, it's not, it's not, it's not like written law. Like I was told that it was. So, like, my where where does all this come from? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I would counter that a bit and say it is in the Bible, but it's not endorsed in the Bible. That's what I'm looking. That's what that's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. So, just because the Bible is full of patriarchy doesn't mean it's saying, and this is how we should do things forever. Yeah. It's yeah. showing you this is the messy world we live in. Pay attention to the stories of the yeah. victim. Yeah. Pay attention to the stories of the people on the bottom. This is what Jesus was always doing. Pay attention to the people on the bottom, the yeah. overlooked, the silenced, uh, those that we assume have very little value. 
this is the people that Jesus pulled out and said, highlighted them and said, pay attention to these people. And I think if we learn to read the stories, um, I'm still learning how to do this. You know, I'm reading through uh, Ezra Nehemiah Chronicles uh, and trying to read it without a, with a new way of seeing instead of, well, this is just the way it is. And that's how we're supposed to do it. Even, you know, the Kings and the prophets, everything they did was correct. Isn't that, isn't that the way it is? They were God's appointed. So they did everything correctly. When instead we have the story of, well, let's just take David where it's showing us the whole messy mistakes, missteps, everything that David did, that the nation of Israel did, that all these Kings did, that the prophets did saying, look at this humanness. And can we, first of all, identify with that? Yeah. In some way, or, and then can we learn from it? Can we yeah. learn to do things differently? But I think instead by um, by saying that the Bible has, by putting so much authority on the Bible and it's inerrant and everything it says is perfect, we've assumed that all the stories, and they're not directives, they're stories. Yeah. The stories tell us how to live when they're telling us stories of what people did that caused incredible harm. And yeah. we're supposed to take something from that. Uh, Carolyn Custis James wrote, I forget the name of the book, but she talked about how, like, for instance, with patriarchy, we we often mistake and the church has made the mistake of assuming that the backdrop of the text is the law of the text. And like she talks about how a lot of the stories that take place in the Bible were written against the backdrop of patriarchy. That's just the way that it was. That doesn't mean that that's necessarily what the Bible is teaching as directive, as you said before. And when we misunderstand that, we kind of switch those two things around. It can become very confusing and messy. And we start using the text and making the text say things that doesn't necessarily endorse uh, for our modern modern times. Yeah, exactly. And she's written yeah. a really uh, in very brilliant book, I think, on Ruth, the book of Ruth, yep. which patriarchy is like just blown apart and smashed. Like in the first chapter, they just kill all the male characters and all that's left is women and they're highlighted for the rest of the text. So women and foreigners, these are the ones that save the day. They're the heroes. They're the best example of the loving kindness and compassion of God. And at the end of the book, it's so ironic and sad when we have the genealogy, Boaz is mentioned and Ruth is not. So patriarchy Mm. just went, thanks Ruth. Thanks so much. And we're back to uh, normal. Yeah. Back to normal programming. Patriarchy wins the day. So it's just, That's a brilliant story. And if we don't recognize some of the irony and disruption in all of that, we're missing something really cool. Yeah, you lose all that when you look at it as this is just a historical story of somebody named Ruth and this is what happened to them. Like when you miss those elements that someone brilliantly wrote into the story, when you insist it has to be historical like that, like Adam and Eve, same kind of thing. Like you said before, when you insist it was two people who really lived, everybody came from them, you miss the brilliant elements of the story that you, you'd be able to see if you would just op- if we would open up our minds to the idea that, you know, this is a narrative that somebody wrote to make a whole bunch of points. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what does it look like then? You know, we talk about these ideas being grounded in culture, society. The second part of that quote about grounding in the person of Jesus, like what does it look like then to take these ideas and shift them, shift our focus from culture and society into the person of Jesus? How, how does our theology or whatever words we want to use to describe it change i think that's an ongoing question Mm. for me a process for me of learning 
So if we were going to take the, the ones I mentioned before, patriarchy, what does it look like to live in an unpatriarchal, unpatriarchal world for me? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, it's more about, um, so, so not highlighting, but, but just bringing the feminine attributes kind of up to par and present as much as we have, like what we would call male uh, kind of ways of being. And so I think really emphasizing nurturing and serving and tenderness and being emotionally literate and, mm. and vibrant and embracing each other instead of this need to dominate and win and be objective and be strong warriors like that mm. warrior image that we have that we have especially in the u.s not so much in canada but this warrior image like being in the military is like the height of service yeah. for your country and i think being a warrior is the best you can be how about being a mother you give birth to new life like yeah. why is that seen as the height of uh, what you can do in service for your community and for the world. Then yeah. anyway, just heightening some of those, what we have classified as more feminine traits mm. as ways of really um, being a, a whole, being more whole human beings and bringing something to the world that helps everyone around you flourish. And I think Jesus, um, and maybe I'm imagining here a bit, but that's fine, we can imagine. But I think Jesus uh, really had a lot of feminine traits traditionally feminine traits that he exhibited and that that caused a little bit of problem for him uh in that he wasn't wasn't quite seen as the you know the the strong enough leader yeah. um the perfect male in his society so yeah. i think he brought a lot of that into the picture mm. and if we look at um capitalism or this idea of private ownership um what about sharing and we see this in the early church as well they held everything in common they weren't trying to amass wealth for themselves if they had wealth it was to share with others so that everyone had enough everyone should have enough to eat to have housing to to flourish to basically to live mm. and so i think this idea of sharing is important to i can't oh yeah this idea of owning like i mean this is where we got slavery from and where mm -hmm colonizing as well i don't know if that falls falls under capitalism probably this idea of ownership so in canada we have this horrible history and i know in the u.s they do too of we just came in and take took over the land and said well we now own it and the indigenous people going how do you loan, own land how do you own water how do you own air like it makes mm. no sense yeah. and i think we really did a huge misstep in in colonizing and having this idea of well everything has to be owned by someone so it might as well be us Yep. instead of no you can't own the world you can't own creation you can't own other human beings yeah so that that's a still being you know a process for me of how do you live without this idea of ownership is mm. super challenging yeah so what has been like think about that like you said that that's been like a struggle like a a struggle but like it's been a you're wrestling with kind of what that what that looks like what has been the biggest piece that you personally have had to wrestle with in your own faith development someone who grew up in a very narrow world someone who's now thinking about what it means to um you know widen the conversation like what piece of whether you want to call it theology or a piece about the bible or a piece about your faith has been the biggest wrestling point for you yeah that's a really good question and i don't know if i have a really simple answer <laughs> um because I don't think there's one big thing. I know there's been mm -hmm. some, you know, uh, I can point to something, oh, something changed then. 
but it's always part of a process, I think, a continuing process of learning to live wider, basically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in many ways. Um, I know, that, well, one of the things is, and, and to put it simply, I guess, is I am not the savior of the world. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is not that I'm trying to replace Jesus or anything, but this idea that I am responsible for other people, that I need to fix them, I need to make sure they hear the gospel, I make, need to make sure that they make a decision, I need to make sure that as a pastor or leader that they're following God in the right way and that their family's in line and that they're doing their devotion. Like, I'm just so responsible to make sure that everyone is doing it right, yeah. myself included. Yeah. And it's this huge burden that I just can't bear. And mm-hmm. I think when I, one, one morning I would just went, I don't have to fix everyone or anything really. That's not my job. And I just let it go. And I felt such a sense of relief. And I mm. went, Oh, I can just be with people. I can just really um, enjoy them and learn from them yeah. and try to help them if they are, if they're asking for help and journey with them in a good way. Mm. And I think, oh, that sounds more human, actually, mm. than always trying to be saving and fixing and managing everyone to make sure that they're doing the right thing, which I was doing because that was done to me. Yeah. And I thought that's how you lead, yeah. you manage people. And so that was one of the things that really changed for me is this idea of responsibility mm-hmm. for making the world right, yeah. according to my very narrow lens yeah i think my for me i would say on that same note i was just talking about this with somebody the other day that this season of grief that i've been in after my father passed away in march has really taught me that i don't have to i'm not responsible for everybody else all the time you know and i think for me like growing up in the church world being a pastor kind of like you were just saying, it was always, the focus was always on everybody else. Everybody else, make sure everybody else is okay. Make sure everybody else is doing the right things. Make sure everybody else is happy, whatever whatever word you want to use, not being present for everybody else and their problems. But I was never really present for myself in mine. And so I never, you know, experienced really grief before. I never really opened myself up to grief. I just bottled everything up, shoved it away, moved on with my life, you know, that kind of thing. And that was a a very narrow way to live in, in a lot of ways, because it was a very, it was very focused on other people. And I could ignore that messy stuff inside of me. But now this season that I'm in has really opened me up to much wider space where I've allowed myself to say, it's okay if so-and-so, if I can't be present for so-and-so, because I need to be present for me in this moment that has exploded, you know, the grief inside to allow me to experience a lot of things I've never experienced before. So it's a very different kind of conversation, but at the same time, it's, it's, I think it's an example of going from that narrow to that wide in a very real life kind of a situation. Yeah, exactly. Because what you're talking about is the human experience and experiencing the human experience instead of having all these constraints put on you to say, this is the only type of human experience that God is in favor of. Exactly. Well, no, it's the whole human experience. Yeah. That is actually make is what makes us know that we are alive yep. and that we share this, these experiences with so much of the world. That's a beautiful thing. If it's, okay. And it's a hard thing too. That's right. All right. Last question for you. Talk to the person who is um, in a place personally where they're trying to think wider 
They're trying to believe wider. They're trying to embrace these wider ideas, but yet they still find themselves um, in many ways in a very narrow world. Maybe, maybe they, maybe they grew up in the evangelical space like we spoke about before, and maybe their family's still in that place that can make a lot of things very difficult. Maybe their friends are still in that place. Maybe they're still involved in a church that's in that place, but they're trying to think wider. Everything around them is kind of pushing them in to remain narrow. What is your word of encouragement or advice for that person? (laughs) That's a big thing. Um, That is my context still a little bit uh, because I may be living this life uh, over here in Montreal, but my family back in a Mennonite community in Manitoba is still at many in many ways at the place where I came from mm. that has not changed very much at all and some of these interactions have been painful mm. and so I'm still trying to figure out how to really be a good daughter a good sister a good cousin a good aunt to my family that thinks I'm a little bit too wide uh or a little too much or um have not you know, been faithful in the way that I should have been faithful. So those are difficult relationships to negotiate. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to go wider, I would say whatever is in front of you, say yes to it in whatever, however tiny and squeaky that little yes can be, (laughs) just say yes to that. For me, it was uh, doing some graduate work and reading texts that were beyond my a belief system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from different traditions, read different traditions, um, experience um, different things that you're not, you know, maybe we're afraid to try because you think, oh no, we'll go with someone and try that thing that you've thought. Maybe I'll take dancing lessons, I don't know, or something, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Take yeah. someone with you and try it and and just watch. For me, one of the most important things is watch what happens in your body. Am I feeling an immediate tenseness and a closing off and just question that going, hmm, why am I closing off? Am I afraid of something? Mm. Am I really in danger? No, I'm not in danger. Then why am I closing off? Mm. Is this just a, uh, it's a fear of some sort. And just to recognize that and go, okay, and talk your body through it and work through it because we just have these conditioned responses that we don't, we didn't think through these responses. We just do them because we've been told don't go there. That's scary. That's bad. You'll end up in hell or something Mm -hmm. when those are not, it's a fear, fear to keep us to control people, fear used to control people and to put your, your body yourself into spaces where you go, I'm actually safe because I'm with people. I know nothing bad is happening and to let your body know we are safe. It's okay to explore. One of the breath prayers that I do is, um, the, the world or God is a huge wide open space and I'm free to explore. Yeah. Like this idea of we are once again back in the creation stories with the all of creation to explore and to enjoy instead of, you know, a very narrow, narrow way of being and thinking yeah. and living in our bodies. And our bodies really give us a lot of information if we'll just start paying attention to them. Yeah. That wide open pasture that you spoke of before, right? It might be a narrow gate, but the pasture is wide, wide open to explore. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, hey, we are just about out of time, but this has been uh, a lot of fun. Thanks so much for making time for me and our listeners. And thank you for your work. I think it's really important and really good. Thanks. I really enjoyed this time.
Yeah. And real quick, where can people go to find you online, connect with you and your work and uh, read a little bit more? So I do have a website. It's mattdowney.wordpress.com. So it's M-A-T-T-E-D-O-W-N-E-Y. And I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, Instagram at Matt Downey. You can find me there. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes and maybe we'll do it again sometime. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Man.